This is the EdTech Podcast, your B2B show for the best thought leadership in the industry, bringing you education, information, and inspiration, only on MarketScale. sitting there with a pen and paper. Virtual reality is an interesting medium where students can access a wide range of content. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the future of e-learning, a MarketScale podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. And thanks again for joining us for another episode of the podcast. Make sure you're subscribing on Apple Podcasts and Spotify to get upcoming and a catalog of previous episodes. You can find us by searching The Future of E-Learning or searching Market Scale and giving us a subscribe. You can also find all of this content and more of our cross-industry content, including articles, videos, and podcasts on our website as well, marketscale.com industries. Make sure you're checking that out. All right, I'm looking forward to today's conversation. We're chatting returning to school in the fall. It's something that all educators are thinking about. Now that the spring 2020 semester is over for universities and public schools alike, you know, there might be a few stragglers, but overall, we're done with the spring semester. That means a summer full of difficult decisions and strategy awaits. Educators and administrators are preparing for a fall curriculum with optimism that schools will physically reopen, uh, that hopefully adapts to the individual and structural deficiencies to education that were brought by COVID-19. A lot of it was out of the hands of educators and administrators, and so there has to be a strategy that takes into that uh, takes all of that into account and takes into account uh, what students need most. How do you structure curriculum to address missed content without pushing back the current grades instruction? How do you approach addressing students' stress and anxiety and general mental health during this transition back to school? And how might staffing challenges also pose barriers to implementing this adapted curriculum? We're breaking all of this down today on the podcast, and we're getting some thoughts from our friends at iStation. They're an e-learning program providing solutions for English, math, and Spanish education and instruction. We're coming back for another discussion after breaking down how to approach school-wide interventions in the fall. So I'd like to re-welcome our guests, Deanne Jeffrey and Ginger Brawley, both strategic PD specialists at iStation. Deanne and Ginger, welcome. Great to have you back on. How you doing? I'm doing great. Good to be here. Yeah, thank you, Daniel, for having us back. This conversation is certainly a lengthy conversation because there's so many issues to address. So we're glad to be back to have a chance to talk some more about this important topic. Of course. It is the topic for all of educators across the United States. <laughs> yes, yes. It is uh, It is something that's on everyone's mind, and that's what makes it so incredibly timely. Uh, so, you know, I'm glad that we're getting you back on in such short time. I mean, I feel like we just had you on the podcast, so we are, we are charging ahead with more insights, and I always love chatting with iStation, so let's go ahead and jump into it. Um, let's start by just... I don't know, unpacking some of the anecdotes you're hearing from people. I feel like we started the last podcast this way as well, but I think it just sets a good stage for how people are reacting, you know, emotionally to a lot of these situations. Uh, What are the main sentiments that you're hearing from educators as they end the spring semester and they take their break and they start to look ahead and brainstorm on the fall semester? What's really on people's minds? 
I talked with one of my principal friends this morning when I was sharing oral reading fluency from iStation. It's going to be new to them. So I was talking to her about it, and I said, so what are y'all's plans? And she said, well, we have three different ones. One is just to start school back as normal. The second one is like a hybrid of, you know, some school, some homeschool. And the third one would be if it was all going to be virtual learning at home. And they're in the process of planning what each one of those would look like. So um, I think I think everybody has to have a numerous possibilities going back into the school in the fall. Absolutely, Ginger. And Ginger and I and our whole team at iStation, we have been hosting webinars by some really renowned experts in our profession that have given us a lot of food for thought about what to think about when we make these various plans for returning. And just to build upon what Ginger said, one of the things that I've heard most recently that I think might be worthy of talking about today or just putting out there for other people to consider is in one of the plans that you might consider your younger students going back to the teacher that they had the previous year just for a short amount of time so that that teacher that knows this student could help identify those students' needs. And I thought that was, I had not even considered that until I heard that last week on a webinar with Dr. Pasternick. And I thought, if I were a practicing principal right now, and Ginger and I are both former principals, and I were having to plan three plans for returning to school, that I really might consider that and take that in front of my leadership team and ask a few parents input on that, because I think that could really alleviate some stress on our children and our teachers as the kiddos come back to school and we're trying to identify academic needs, social emotional needs, and even basic needs that kids might be having. So I wanted to share that because to me that really spoke volumes about something that might be really smart to do. True. And that's something listening to you, Dan, we hadn't had that conversation yet. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, wow, that really helps with that social emotional part of our discussion today, too, because the kids don't won't have to get to know a new teacher if they go back to the one that they had previously. And uh, so that's a lot of my mind is whirling thinking of the possibilities of that, because I do think in our the challenges because of COVID-19, I do think that we are going to have to rethink and create some new systems to be able to meet our students' needs and to figure out where are they? You know, what do we need to do for them? And I don't think we're going to be able to just go back to the way things were. I think we're really going to have to create some new shifts in our thinking as we go through this change and challenges. <laughs> Agreed. Yeah, it's going to be a real... Uh, real shift in strategy and it's going to be something that is going to require all hands on deck and is going to require uh, you know, just a, a lot of nuance and planning because the reality is that some of these strategies may be implemented and may not work immediately and uh, you know educators and administrators I guess just have to be ready to stay in adapt mode just because the pandemic well, it's not really ending, but just because some of the restrictions are ending right now or because things seem to be 
wanting to return to normal doesn't mean that there still can't be new spikes or new changes that throw a wrench in these plans. So it really is going to be all about adaptability and staying uh, as adaptive as they were when uh, the pandemic first hit, in my opinion. One of the biggest concerns that I hear educators discussing and talking about is the knowledge gap. You know, where, you know, where are they? You know, we didn't get to finish up the school year with our benchmark, end of the year benchmarks, and we didn't, what, you know, those standards that were not taught the last three months of school. You know, so you put, put all of that with what is just a normal, what we call summer slide. Now you put the COVID slide, and I'm sure we are going to have unprecedented negative outcomes for our students. So where do we start with them? And, you know, that's, I think that's a big, big discussion that, that is going to have to be addressed everywhere. Yeah, data is going to be more important now than ever. Data collection is on their, on the academic side for those learning standards that we should have addressed in the school in the spring that we didn't get to address at school, who's mastered those and who has not. And of those students that haven't mastered those standards from the previous year, what kind of evidence-based or scientific-based interventions are we going to implement with our students? And so this has been and always been important, but now more than ever, we don't have time to waste with instructional practices that don't have high impact on learning. And so as a school leader, we really need to be evaluating what strategies are our teachers using in the classroom and what kind of impact were we seeing with those strategies in core, in our core instruction, and then especially in our, in our intervention instruction. So collecting that data to determine where are our kids and what do they know and what not know, that is very important. Number Right up there, um, I think actually there's a tie for, for most important things to do. Collect data on their academic needs, but then also having conversations with kids about where they are socially and emotionally. What is their well-being right now? emotionally, because if kids aren't in the right mindset to learn, then we are just wasting our time with these evidence-based interventions. If kids aren't ready emotionally to receive our instruction, then it all falls to the wayside. And so now more than ever, schools are going to have to offer up assistance and support for what I fear is going to be a larger number of students than ever that are going to have needs in the area of social, emotional, and mental health. And the sad reality is that our schools fall short on having enough of those mental health professionals to really meet the needs of all of our kids. The trauma that this has created for children, and some more than others, is going to impact their ability to learn. And so what kind of systems do our, will our schools have set up in order to support the students and the teachers in uh, developing or helping foster the kids' growth in the area of the social-emotional. So that's a, a big challenge and, and an important one that I know is heavy on the minds of our administrators as they plan to go back to school. So, uh, identifying those social and emotional needs along with their academic needs are, in my opinion, and in a, the opinion of a lot of people that we've been hearing uh, 
discuss this topic, you know, they would agree. Yeah, I want to go ahead and lean into some uh, specific topics and strategy around them because basically y'all laid out perfectly kind of a, a an introduction to all the different dynamics that are at play here. Like you said, social-emotional learning, huge. Uh, where assessment fits into all this, also important. Um, you know, the, the adaptability of the strategy, also very important. So let's go ahead and dig into uh, what these look like at a granular level. Um, let's start with uh, a statistic that uh, I know y'all are kind of using to inform some of your communications with clients. I know you as professionals are floating an estimate right now that about 25% of key standards this school year didn't get taught because of disruption by the pandemic. I know that's an estimate and, you know, it's not like rooted in some like giant uh, peer reviewed study or something. But but I, I you know, I, I think it think it has value. Where are you pulling that number from? You know, how are you um, informing how much, uh, I guess, educational material was missed out on during the pandemic? And what's your reasoning behind that? Daniel, that was a, a real guesstimate on my part <laughs> when I began to when, I, when we started talking about the broadcast. I just took the the academic school year, and we were able to to teach the kids for three fourths of it here in our state. And so, it's a rough estimate that we taught three fourths of the standards. So you're right; that is not based in any scientific evidence. It's an estimate, but we do know that um, in our pacing calendars with our sequence of standards that we teach across any school year. I think any educator that you talk to would agree that we have way more standards to teach than we have time to teach them. And so that's another reason that I made that estimate the way that I did. So whether it's 33.5% or 15%, there, there's a lot of standards that we weren't able to teach at school. And a lot of times, at the end of the school year, that's when we teach those most rigorous standards for that grade level. And it's just worrisome that we weren't able to do that with the kids. Well, and also it's the time of the year when you're doing a lot of your common assessments and your formative, which are formative assessments. And you look at that data and say, okay, I've taught these standards, but who still hasn't learned them? Absolutely. And that's when you do a lot of the reteaching and the interventions to make sure they're ready for the next school year and uh, and they've learned what they need to know. I love that, Ginger, because it's really more about the learning than it, you know, that it is the teaching. Yes, we may have covered all of the standards, but did the kids learn them? And that's what our assessment helps us uncover. And, you know, the educators need data to plan to, to make these decisions so that our students can excel. So it's real, I mean, I'm, we say educators, but it's all stakeholders, the teachers, the school leaders, the students themselves, our parents, all of them are stakeholders for their, you know, for educators, education for their, for their students. And, you know, when the schools reopen, whatever that may look like, educators are going to need to quickly gauge where their students are. And that's that's the key piece coming back is how are we going to do that to know what standards are they still missing that they didn't get if we're talking, you know, if we stick with that 25% that they didn't get taught or didn't learn, what are we going to do about it? You know, so that's that is a big piece of 
what we need to do. We need to be proactive about that, not just, you know, reactive to, okay, we think they don't know it, but we need to be proactive and we need the data to show us exactly what we need to do with the students because they're not all going to come in the same learning. We know school is, and what kids know is different from A, B, C, D to every child is different, but we got to figure out what they know quickly. For sure. So where does assessment and targeted instruction strategically uh, fit into identifying where those gaps are? Like, how does it actually work in practice to administer tests and uh, administer focused instruction that can then determine and gather that data in the first place? Well, assessment gives us information. That's that's what we need is the the right information so that we can plan target. I'm sorry. Yeah, tar- yeah plan. Yeah, I was going to say plan and t- I was going to jump yeah, in for thank you. you. Oh, thank you. I needed that. <laughs> I, thought you were pa- I thought you were pausing, but no, carry on. So well, so sorry. that we can plan. I mean, we need. I, in my mind, I wish that we could take, if not, send them back to their start the school with their previous teacher, but at least let their previous teacher meet with a few students even during the before school starts to do a little bit of an assessment on them you know there's i know i station has a wonderful assessment that we can give students that gauges where they are right now um that's a piece of the data but all the data in the world doesn't do any us any of us good any good if we don't act on that data. So not only do we need to collect the data, we need to think about that information and design design it to connect to the learning that the students need right now. And we don't have time to go back to do everything. We need to focus on the essential part of the learning that that they need right now to carry forward. Well, we have to design assessment connected to learning. So if this is the essential things that they need to be learning, then our assessment needs to tell us that. And then we need to give feedback. We need to look at that data and say, oh, you know, the majority of our students don't know this essential information right now. So that's where we need to take action on. We cannot just give it and think we're going to move forward. We have to take action on what the assessment data is telling us. And, and everybody's assessments look different. And what, you do, what they do with the assessments can be different. But for our focus on student needs, they have to do something with the assessment and connect it to the learning that they're expecting the students to learn. You know, the, and, and to give the students feedback. They have to have feedback on that, what they're expecting to learn and know that the, they have to act on that feedback. So it's not just stu- teachers giving an assessment and looking at it. The students need to know how they're doing on those assessments also so that they can be motivated to grow and, and do something about their learning. It's, it's involving all parties. So once we identify what the students know and don't know and plan our course of action, we just need to be sure that that lesson or that strategy that we're using with our students is a strategy that is evidence-based and that has high impact on learning because there's no time to waste with 
old school strategies of teaching that we've been doing for years that don't prove to be effective. So the most important element in any classroom is the teacher. And we always need to remember that. Do our teachers have the skills that they need and the professional development that they need in order to deliver these evidence-based best practices with our students? That's going to be more important now than ever as we try to close this achievement gap that we know will be existing. What are some potential miscalculations or misunderstandings of the situation when developing and implementing uh, these adaptable assessment plans that you think might be common or might be uh, roadblocks that educators and administrators need to be weary of? I think it's just going through the motions and delivering the assessment just to say I've delivered the assessment but never taking any action to help children learn based on what the data tells us. That's one that I think is important. And then another is we've got to be sure that that data is valid. Or is the information that we are getting from our children valid? I don't want to spend a whole lot of time making a decision on a kid if the data is not valid. That's a big waste of everybody's time. So are we getting good um, valid and reliable data with the assessments that we're using. That's critical. That reminds me of a webinar I was listening to last week. And in the visual that they shared was an aquarium with really dirty water. And it says if the water in the aquarium is dirty, don't spend time diagnosing individual fish. So there's other things that are going here. It's not just mm-hmm. the student. <laughs> it's other things that are going on. And I think that goes back to, you know, just giving an assessment is not going to help a student. It's what you do with the data, take action on that's going to make a difference. That, that's kind of where you go back and you you don't diagnose the fish, sure. you change the water. So, and that goes back right, with professional right. development. Do the teachers know what to do with this data? And are they making data-driven decisions for their students? And that comes back to leadership and coaching. And there's just, you know, there's so many aspects involved in this. And it's not, those are things that happened before COVID too, <laughs> So So what's uh, what's some advice that you're giving on curriculum crafting then Uh, more on the actual contents of it or or strategy around administering it? You know, like what does it actually look like to uh, give instruction to a fourth grade student body that also needs to pick up the last 25 percent of third grade before they can start to uh, take in? Uh, their fourth grade content or you know is it subject specific that you do kind of a an extra boot camp almost that gets integrated into the um, uh, the curriculum to catch up on missed standards what is some of that advice down to the minute strategy of implementing it day to day that uh, y'all are giving or y'all are you know learning from or trying to uh, provide to the conversation um, and how does that impact the potential curriculum response? Well, Daniel, I've been just been talking with educators and sharing with them all the options for what school might look like when um, they return because a one-size-fits-all won't work, we know, and it's really up to that school to make the decision that best fits 
their kids and their staff's needs and their community's needs. So I've just been offering up a lot of ideas in my conversations. And then driving home to administrators this point over and over again that our uh, multi-tiered systems of supports have to be stronger than ever. Our RTI processes, our response to intervention processes, if they weren't sound and healthy systems before COVID, then well, we've got to we've got to get them in place because we have to have a variety of supports in place. And our teachers have to have the understanding to support our kids in all these different layers of instruction in order to meet the vast amount of needs that are going to be walking through our door, hopefully, when they come back in August. So shoring up our multi-tiered systems of support, our RTI processes fall under that multi-layered system of support, and then offering up just a variety of ideas for ways school might look when we return, if we return. Those have been my options. Well, in the collaboration, like right now, the leadership and the teachers, they need to be collaborating together to to plan this. And it and then they need to know when it comes when they start back to school, however that looks, they need to know what is expected. These things all need to be in place now, planned and in place. And it's real hard for I know like what Dan just said, it's real hard for us to sit here and go, Well, this is the answer for because there's not just one answer. And um, I remember a long time ago, a parent told me, well, you're the principal, you should know the answers. And I remember telling her that if I were, if I knew all the answers, I wouldn't be a principal, I'd be a millionaire, you know, because I don't, you don't know all the answers. And some of it is trial and error, but it is what is best practices. We know what is best practice. We know what research has told us. And, and having those systems in place, just like having a core program that is sufficient that meets like at least 75% of your kids' academic needs. If that's not in place, then the RTI that you have is not going to work right because you have too many students that you're trying to help. So it's a lot of things that, that have to be in place and working effectively. And it's not a, just a one answer that will help everybody because every school and every child is different. Now, to that point about uh, every child being different and everyone having a different, uh, I guess, experience that they're bringing to the classroom in fall, um, you know, being stuck at home uh, for however many months, uh, we don't really know what family situations are like, what general at-home situations are like, financial, socioeconomic. Uh, I mean, we can probably uh, assume based on like literal data from our students, but the day-to-day, the interpersonal interactions, that kind of stuff cannot really be deciphered by just blanket assessing or uh, ignoring that dynamic of integrating the students back into the classroom and creating an environment for the students. Uh, So, that means there needs to be a level of interpersonal care and there needs to be addressing and supporting the social emotional needs of the students like y'all were saying. So uh, what does that strategy look like? Again, kind of like what we were just talking about with the assessments. What does supporting 
uh, the mental health and the social emotional needs of your students look like in practice? How do you build in a sensitive strategy into the curriculum for readjusting students at that level in the fall? We have some experts on staff at iStation that have done a, a wonderful series, or not a series, but um, a webinar, and it's on our blog at iStation.com from the website. You can get to the blog, blog and then search that. And they go in depth about how schools can implement social emotional learning programs to foster academic and behavioral and social growth in their kiddos. So that I just want to offer that up and let you know that's out there. But um, it, in my opinion, it begins by talking with kids. I mean, that's, it, that's not really that profound, but you have to build a relationship with the children so that they trust you and talk with you. And that is how you, you observe the children, you talk with the children, and that's how you learn what their needs might be. I mean, there's, there are other things you can do. You can, with the older kids, you can give them little surveys about how they're feeling. And, and that can be information that's good data upon which I, you can, can work. So there are school-wide programs of support that help kids develop those social-emotional skills. And then there are strategies that teachers use at the classroom level that um, can help foster those skills. And that webinar goes in depth into all of those. It's one of the things the webinar said was that is social-emotional learning should no longer be thought of as, as a soft skill, but it's critically important for, for schools to be teaching these, intentionally teaching them and, and, and modeling for their students um, and redirecting as needed because there's research that shows out there that it's 11% point gain on standardized achievement tests when these when uh, SEL skills are taught. So it's not just producing children that are emotionally stable uh, or know how to handle their feelings, uh, but but it it helps them to learn academically when they can think about this is the way I need to do this. It, I want to come to school. And it's really all about the, the leadership and the teachers creating a cultural environment for our students so they have a sense of security and a feeling of community. And that is all about the relationship that you build with those kiddos. And it's one-to-one for your whole classroom and for your whole school. And it, it's the it's something that that is not talked about as much lately, or maybe it's just because I'm not in the school as much as I, you know, was when I was a principal, but, but creating that culture for your school of respect, kindness, uh, working relationships, you know, establishing, maintaining a relationship with others, you know, how to show empathy for your classmates, those are all skills that can be taught, and it makes for a better child, a more sensitive of others, the learning the diversity of, of others and, and accepting it. I know that was rambling some there, but there's just so much involved in this that um, it's and you need to almost start there with your kids because you can't get to the learning if they're not ready to to be able to express how they're feeling. 
and feel comfortable. Right. Right. If they're not in if they're not in the headspace to even learn in the first place, then you're just basically feeding the same dynamic that the pandemic introduced in the first place, which is, you know, a total disruption to learning and being out of the uh, headspace to learn. So, yeah, you know, I, I think that is a, a broader uh, social kind of strategy that might be foreign to a lot of teachers and educators, even the most well-intentioned ones. I mean, so I, I think it is important to make that a focus part of the strategy immediately uh, to really individually try to address the needs of each student so that once they're in the classroom and while they're in the classroom, they're getting the reinforcement they need. Yes, sir. And Daniel, another thing is addressing their basic needs. I, I worry that the pandemic has created such a financial burden on many families that when kids do come back to school, will they have their supplies? Will they have shoes? Will, uh, and schools oftentimes have wonderful partnerships with their community and the community the community sponsors events like back to school bashes where they offer up free school supplies and free haircuts and the, the, the doctors they are giving shots and so there's so many needs that we're going to have to identify <clears throat> that may need to be met when the kiddos come back yes and that's you know something that's the teachers can do and, and when you're talking about academic you're thinking social skills well that's so hard to fit that in when you've got all these essential standards that you need to learn teach also but you can teach reading by using a book that you discuss the character's feelings and the actions in the story and that's that's teaching social emotional learning you know character development so it, it it's a it takes a true gifted teacher who can c combine all of these aspects and pull them together for to meet their students needs academically and socially and but you can do it while you're teaching those essential elements if you recognize what it is and 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 use that moment teachable moment to talk about well how is this character feeling and and discuss options of ways they could have reacted you know so there's a lot a lot of things that teachers need to be aware of that they can do and and most of them just do it naturally honestly but it's still it's something that you know through staff development making all teachers more aware of the social emotional learning skills that are needed and and intentionally put them into their lesson plans there's lots of different ways that that can be addressed you know and it starts with you know the the leader of the campus being able to create a a caring school or a climate where teachers are feel welcomed and cared for valued and respected teachers and students so there's a lot, it goes all around, you know, do the, te do the students treat each other with respect and, and do they care about each other? And then finally, I guess, playing on the uh, professional development you were mentioning, but maybe even just more broadly, I want to get your thoughts on uh, staffing and how that is going to impact strategy going back to school in the fall as well. Uh, where does staffing in general resource allocation uh, and professional development, you know, uh, equipping the professionals and literally parceling out who does what, uh, how does that fit into the strategy for coming back in the fall? And 
how do you imagine any staffing or resource allocation challenges impacting the potential curriculum response? If I were in charge of the world, Daniel, I would offer up more mental health professionals Love it. on every campus. Yes. <laughs> I would offer up additional intervention staff for every campus. And I would offer up additional resources to purchase materials that might not be readily available, that were evidence-based, proven to be effective in working for those students to close this gap. Now, that's what I would do if I were in charge of the world uh, and had my wish list for education in America. But I know that, you know, that's not going to happen. So Ginger will tell you what it really will be like. <laughs> yeah. In, in the realistic yeah. world, you are right. very... With, without Deanne at the helm. Yeah, right. <laughs> You're on a very tight budget. And you only are going to have so many teachers on your campus and so many, so much money in your budget to, to finance or to out, allocate to resources. So, I mean, in right now I'm looking at thinking that we need, we need more interventions. I think we're going to need more interventions than we ever had before. So if I'm going to have to worry about staffing, I want to take my most effective teachers and place them with the students who need it the most that's a staffing issue you know and uh, and all teachers are talented and effective but they have their strengths and weaknesses just like everyone does you know in all all professions but I think we're going to need you know more time for our our teachers to work with students you know, and because intervention is is more. I, I heard that the other day. It's more, more time, more teacher-led instruction, more scaffolding instruction, and more opportunities for the students to respond to the instruction, for the teacher to give corrective feedback, you know, more, more intense motivational strategies because the kids are going to feel overwhelmed when they come back. So staffing and using what you have is going to be like putting a puzzle together sometimes without all of the, without the picture. You're not real sure about what the kids are going to be coming back as. So how am I going to use my staffing most effectively to meet their needs? So it's going to be a, a challenge. It's going to be a challenge for for the administrators. Hey, Daniel. If I was also in charge of the world, I would like for states to ease up on um, academic expectations for kids and teachers for about a year or two, <laughs> because how can we expect our, our kids to perform on state assessments like they've been doing in the past with this trauma that we've all faced? So I'm going to, I want to add that to my wish list. And if I Sounds fair to world, me. I, I, I agree with that. Let's one. let's let's <laughs> run a campaign do, platform let's on take it. Off some of this pressure. We're already pressured for so much academic growth every school year. Teachers feel it. Administrators feel it. Uh, the kids feel it. That's the saddest part. Let's take that off for a year or two and let us get back on track of, of true, teaching. true teaching. What this we know we know what the students need. We need time to be able to teach those essential ones without worrying about, I'm sorry to say it, the standardized end-of-the-year assessments. 
Um, because what did we do when COVID hit? What was one of the first things that went that we said was not essential? Testing. The end of the year state testing. Teachers were still working with their students. They were still teaching. Students were still learning. And we want to do what I'm going to call formative assessments that tells the teachers what they need to do and feedback to the students without an end of the year test. We didn't, we survived it without doing it. Imagine that. <laughs> mm, I think, interesting. Yeah, maybe it is time to rethink, rethink our, our system of high stakes testing. And that's another podcast, but okay. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, I, I was about to say, let's go ahead and uh, lock that down because I'm, I'm happy to have that conversation too. That sounds great. Um, but in the meantime, Deanne, Ginger, I think that wraps up our conversation for today. Some strategy, some insights, some thoughts on what educators and administrators can do to have a student focused approach to returning to school in the fall. And if school doesn't end up returning in the fall in the way we want it to, and it ends up being the remote learning that, uh, you know, has been, uh, implemented over the last several months, then I think we might need to do another conversation. What does that end up looking like? But I like the optimism. Let's plan on going back to school in the fall. And um, for educators and administrators out there, take Ginger and Deanne's advice to heart. They know what they're talking about. <laughs> Love it. In the real and, world. You know, Deanne, Deanne no. wants to rule the world, too. Deanne so, you know, <laughs> you know, small, 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 small little context for you there. Uh, there we go. All right, everyone. Thank you again so much. Um, again, we've been chatting with Deanne Jeffrey and Ginger Brawley, both strategic PD specialists at iStation. Uh, Deanne, Ginger, thank you both for joining us. Thank you. Uh, thanks. And thank you everyone for listening to today's episode of the podcast. If you like what you heard and want to listen to previous episodes, you can head to marketscale.com slash industries. There you can consume some different articles, podcasts, and video content, not just from the edtech industry, but a variety of different B2B verticals. You can also find this podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Make sure you subscribe at The Future of eLearning by MarketScale and leave a rating and a comment wherever you listen to your podcast content. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. Till next time.